Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. Uh, if you're following through in the Parashayot, the Torah portions, you realize that we have come to the end of Sefer Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, and we're entering in, and as Carl mentioned, I believe during announcements, the Lord willing, next week we have a Torah reading. So if you're, uh, you'd like to attend that, please, please plan on that for next week, Lord willing. But this week's portions were a combination of two portions, Matot and Masay, and we'll go more in depth at Shabbaton into these portions, a very lengthy couple of portions. But I couldn't help but have something that happens to me a lot, and I'm sure it happens to you a lot. I couldn't help but reflect upon Yeshua. How many of you reflect on Yeshua during the day? I do. And the words and the deeds of, of Yeshua the Messiah, they have been studied, <laughs> parsed, taught, expounded upon, written about, <laughs> discussed, memorized, debated, translated to other languages, and, and repeated really from generation to generation now for, for now, nearly 2,000 years now. His words have been all that and more. And I, I for one, I have never grown weary of his words. I've never grown leery or weary of, of learning about him and his ways and what he taught. And one of the best, one of the Gospels, uh, concludes with a unique perspective upon Yeshua and his deeds. And it's the, the Gospel of Yohanan, John chapter 21, verse 25. Ponder this, if you would. Here's an eyewitness person, John, Yohanan, eyewitness making a final comment about Yeshua and what Yeshua said and, and particularly what he did. Here's what he, what he wrote at the end of John chapter 21, verse 25. And there are also many other things that Yeshua did, which if they were written one by one, the writer says, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. When you think about that, here's this eyewitness saying that Yeshua did so much more than even they could record or, or testify to, so much more, uh, and, and uses it in a sense, uh, uh, and says that even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written about all that Yeshua said and done. We find very scarce uh, mention of Yeshua's eyes. We do have mention about some of his feelings at times. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
So here, Yochanan John, the, the Besarab John, ends with that statement. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the, the books that would be written, and actually the word amen comes after that. And then there's Yeshua's statement that we're very familiar with that happened when he was 12 years old. You remember way back when he was 12 years old and his parents who were observant Jews, how, how do you say it? I mean, extremely observant Jews. They went to the Beit HaMikdash, to the temple, to celebrate on the Shlosh Regalim, the three pilgrimage feast. Uh, we have record of some of this. And during one of those feasts, the Feast of Pesach and Hagamatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, during that time frame in the, in the springtime, it says Yeshua went with his family to Yerushalayim. Can you say Yerushalayim? Let's say that again, Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem. And he's there, and, and there he ends up being left behind. How many of you remember that narrative? He's left behind in Jerusalem by his family. They go two or three days away, and then they realize he's gone, etc. We've discussed that many times. But he does say something in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. That's particularly interesting. It says, Yeshua said to them, when they, when they find him, they find him in the temple area, and he's discussing with all the machers, all the big shots, all the rabbinic big shots, all these things. And, and it says, Yeshua said, when they finally find him, he said, why do you seek me? And then he continues with this, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, Greek language scholars point out, and I think correctly, that the phrase that's used here, my father's business, those three English words that translates the Greek, the original Greek there, that that phrase, my father's business, refers to the things that the father, the things of the father that were assigned that are assigned for each person to do. In this case, Yeshua says, I must be about my father's business. I must fulfill my mission would be another way to say it. Don't you realize you're seeking me? Why you seek me? Don't you know that I must fulfill my mission? I must do what I am supposed to do. So in that sense, let me clue you in on something here today. In that sense, you are also on assignment. You're on assignment from the Lord. You're on assignment every day of your life. You're on assignment every day of your life, and the goal of that assignment is to do his will above all else. Yeshua thankfully, thankfully fulfilled that perfectly. Underline the word perfectly. Not a single flaw not a single word amiss, not a single anything wrong. I uh, said that the enemy has come for me, but he has nothing in me. He was blameless. He was the lamb without blemish. He was blameless. He's the sin, sinless lamb of God. And so we can be thankful, to put it in our terminology here in 21st century America, that Yeshua fulfilled his mission and if Yeshua had failed, think of the repercussions. And I'm so glad that he did not fail. But if he had failed, we would be, to put it mildly, we'd be lost. 
We would be dead in our sins with no way to get rid of them. We would be without hope in this world. And he is our living hope, as the book of Titus says. And to wrap it all up in one big bow, we would be destined for eternal damnation. But he didn't fail in his mission. And we must be about our Father's business too. We must be about that which is assigned to us in life and make sure that we fulfill that which the Lord has called us to do. And if you're a follower of Yeshua today, his ruach, his spirit resides in you. His spirit stirs up within you, and probably you can recognize this if you're a believer here today, stirs up a longing within you. Something stirs up inside of you that, that beckons you forward to go forward with, with, with doing the Lord's will, with doing what's right in God's sight, with serving God. Something inside of you is pulling you forward to that. It's very different to, than what's pulling forward people in the world. They have all other things that are pulling them forward. And if we're going to be about his business, then we must be doing his will. We must be obeying his voice. And we must be honoring him in word and deed. That is a high calling. How many agree that's a high calling? To be numbered with Messiah, to be reckoned as, as with him, united with him, that's an amazing calling. And true followers of Yeshua, without a doubt, will want to do their father's, can I use the term, business. <laughs> that which they've been commissioned to do. That which they've been allotted to do. That's which they've been assigned to do. And they'll want to do that. True followers of Yeshua will want to do the father's business, if I can use that term again. They'll want to do the father's business faithfully. And want to make sure that what they're doing is for the furtherance, not of their own kingdom or their own will, but his kingdom and his will. Peter once described Yeshua to a centurion. I've always found this passage amazing when I, since I first read it many years ago. He described Yeshua to a centurion, to a Roman centurion. Many of us know his name. His name was Cornelius. And in Acts chapter 10, beginning with verse 38, Peter's describing Yeshua to this centurion. Think about it. Talk about cross-cultural communication. A Roman centurion and then a Galilean fisherman who had been with Yeshua for several years and hand-trained and taught by Yeshua. And, Yeshua. and Peter finally gets the message, and we discussed this previously here on Shabbat. He finally gets the message of what God wants him to do with Cornelius. So he goes to Cornelius' house, and, and there he is. He has to explain to Cornelius or, or describe to Cornelius who Yeshua is. And this is what he says. You can read the whole text, but... Precisely in verse 38, it says how God anointed Yeshua of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then this part really, really catches me. Who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And then it continues to verse 39. You can read forward, but the first statement of verse 39 says, and Kepha says, and we are witnesses of all things which Yeshua did. We're witnesses to him. 
And one new covenant recounting of Yeshua's ministry states in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. This, then Yeshua went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. That's how it describes what Yeshua did. He went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. The gospels show us, and history tells us, that as word about Yeshua and his deeds, as word spread throughout first century Galilee region and beyond, as that word got out there about this Yeshua, that throngs of people came to him. At one point, the gospels explain how, how the, the, the Yeshua was being hemmed in by all these people. And you remember in one particular case, there's a, a woman with an issue of blood out of the crowd, grabs hold of the hem of his garment, possibly a tzitziot. But here, as word got out about Yeshua and the throngs of people come to him, I, I want us to think about what that looked like. There were people of every age. We can prove that children were there. Older people, sick people, lame, lepers, not leopards, lepers. <laughs> they were all there. People of different vocations and backgrounds. They all, when the word got out about Yeshua and what he said and what he did, they converged on him and upon the shlichim, the apostles. Quite a scene. And in the first century Galilee region, the Galilee area of the first century, was not a place of glitz and glamour. It was not a place of fine clothing. It was not a place of fine dining. It was not a place of up the upper class accoutrements of life. No, that's not what Galilee was about. In fact, for the most part, Galilee was exactly the opposite of those things. That's what was happening in Galilee. To be a Galilean was almost considered almost a put down, you Galilean. A put-down. To be a Galilean, you were considered brutish. You were an Amharats, just a common old, can I say the word, hick. <laughs> Being Galilean meant subsistence farming, barely scratching out a living for most of them. Why did Yeshua talk so much about seeds and harvest and, and wheat and all that? So that's where the people were at. That's where the common people were at. That's what they understood. So being a Galilean, usually you were a subsistence farmer. And you were praying the Lord of the harvest. Uh, Lord, please make sure the rains fall. Make sure the crops go well. Keep the bugs away. They didn't have bug spray back then. And you worked hard and your body wearied. You were, you were overwrought sometimes with all your responsibilities on your plot of land. And you lived in a humble homestead. There were very few wealthy places there. Humble homestead. You didn't live in a mansion. If you were Galilean, most of them lived in humble homesteads, not mansions. And perhaps if you were blessed and it seems like Yeshua was brought into a family like this, you, you had a vocation passed on to you from your father who passed it on, was passed on to him from his father. 
of a vocational background. You certainly had meager food supplies. You couldn't ring up uh, Target and say, please deliver today. Or place an order at, at the local Jason's Deli. You can do anything like that. You had meager food supplies. It was a considerable thing to go out on a long track, and you had to think about, how do I feed myself? Hence, many times, Yeshua intervened. A number of times recorded, he fed thousands of people with a very little amount of food. That was Galilean life. That's what it was like. You probably tended sheep and goats, And you wore coarse rather than fine clothing if you were Galilean. But central to Galilean life in Yeshua's days was, guess what? It's people. The salt of the earth. It's people. With their humble, humble abodes but yet beautiful synagogues. Many of you have seen the remnants of the synagogues in the Galilee. How many of you have been to, to uh, places like... Uh, Capernaum. Anybody been to Capernaum and seen the synagogue there? Even now, it's immense. You see these huge blocks of basalt that they built the synagogue. And we know Yeshua preached in that synagogue. And not too far away was, his, was Peter's mother-in-law's house right there within the Sabbath walk. So they lived meagerly, but their synagogues were nice. They met together in the synagogue. They were faithful and devoted spiritually. This is Galilean. This is a Galilean. Salt of the earth type people. And Galilee with its change in beauty have had the pleasure, really the privilege to live up in that area, visit that area over many years. The springtime when there's an abundance of flowers pop up. And then by August, an abundance of flowers wither away. (laughs) And suddenly the thorns appear. And all that said, that's Galilee. That's what it was like. With its challenging beauty, its hills, its mountains, its, its, its small mountains, the streams that needed to be fjorded during the springtime because the water's flowing, knowing that that would turn into a trickle, a trickle in August before the autumn rains arrived. And then there was always the unpredictable kinaret. Can you say kinaret? Kinneret's the Hebrew word for the Sea of Galilee, the Kinneret. There's the unpredictable Kinneret. That can be like glass one morning, and by the evening it's a raging, and I have seen this personally, white caps on that lake, the Sea of Galilee. That was your life. That's where you lived. That's what it was about. And Yeshua was raised in Nazareth, in Nazareth. And he attended the synagogue, as Luke 4 tells us, regularly in Nazareth. This was his life. This is who he hung out with, the Galilean people, Nazareth, in that area. And Yeshua had, and need, needly, need, needless to say this, but Yeshua had a heart for the people. You know, friends, you should be thankful, we should be thankful, because he has a heart for you today. Whatever your circumstance is, whatever you're facing today, his heart is turned to you. His heart is not the question. The real question is our hearts. Are our hearts turned to him? But his heart is turned to you today. Whatever you're facing, whatever that circumstance is, know that Yeshua loves the people there. He, he cares. 
And he hung out with the humble. And he noticed those who gathered around him. And what a crew that was that gathered around him, as we've already described. And Yeshua grew up probably comfortably with the very meek of the earth. Not so much with the majestically proud who thought they were well accomplished. And we're told in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, that we are to associate with the humble. Associate with the humble. According to the words of Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when Yeshua saw the multitudes, some of like I just described to you, when he saw the multitudes, you know he could have responded in many different ways to the multitudes. He could have said, get me out of here, I don't want to be around these people. He could have said, oh, what do they want? They're such a, a bother to me. Or any type of response, but we never read anything like that with Yeshua. It says, when Yeshua saw the multitudes, guess what? He was moved with compassion for them. And his heart is moved with compassion for you today. He was moved with compassion for them. And then it says this, because they were weary, well, life in Galilee was hard. Life in first century Israel was difficult because they were weary and scattered. And then it says this, like sheep having no shepherd. Now, this last statement, like sheep having no shepherd, connects us directly with Moses. It connects Yeshua with Moses. The Torah informs us it informs us that when it became abundantly clear to Moshe in last week's Torah portion and also this week's portions, when it became abundantly clear to Moshe, God had informed Moses clearly about this, that Moses' final hours of leading the community was coming. When that became really clear to him, Moses didn't say, oh, good, I'm so glad this is over. Man, as these people have been terrible the last 40 years. Thank you, God, for delivering me from all them. He didn't say anything like that. He said basically what we just read in Matthew 9, verse 36, where it describes that they were like sheep having no shepherd. And he cared about those people despite all the troubles that those people had given to him over the 40 years of wilderness wandered, and even before then. He cared about them. And he cared about what would happen to those people after his time was over. And Moses took action. He took action because of his love, because of his care, and because of his concern for his people. He took action. And here's what he did. Numbers chapter 27, verse 15. And please note, when I get to the end, at verse 17, you'll hear the same phrase that Matthew 9.36 says, that like sheep with no shepherd phrase. Here's what happened. Then Moshe spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. He understood what real, the real issue was. Sure, he's de departed. He's a, a gifted and, a, and an anointed leader. He's departing, but the people are going to continue. Who's going to care for those people? 
and he magnanimously pleads with the Lord with Adonai and says, Lord, Lord, someone who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And in response to Moshe's plea, Adonai tells Moses what to do. Here's what it says in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Yehoshua, Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. And Moses exhibited at the end of his life what he mostly exhibited throughout the wilderness journey. What did he exhibit? Well, Numbers chapter 27, verses 22 and 23 explain it. It says in Hebrew, so Moses, guess what? Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Moses, to the end of his life, can I use this term? He was about his father's business. He was about fulfilling the assignment that was given to him. He wanted that fulfilled. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Verse 22, Numbers chapter 27. And he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the Kohen, the priest, and before all the congregation. And he laid his hands on Joshua. And this text says he inaugurated him. He dedicated him. He set him apart. He inaugurated him, initiated him into, just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. And as we ponder the formal recognition of Joshua as the leader to follow Moses, an important question arises, and this is my main point today. An important question arises for us to consider today as we ponder Joshua about to step into Moshe's shoes, so to say, into his place within the community. There's an important question, I believe, that arises from this, and this is the main point. What made Joshua, what made Joshua stand out from among the thousands of people that were part of B'nai Israel? Why did Joshua stand out? What made him stand out? There were tens of thousands. We know there were hundreds of thousands. We just by the census that we read of in the Torah. There were hundreds of thousands of men who were in battle age, age 20 and beyond. Hundreds of thousands. Again, the question, but what made Joshua stand out from among those tens and hundreds of thousands of men? How did Joshua stand out at that time? And why was Joshua different from all of them? And applying that idea to a messianic congregation like ours, a messianic communities like ours today, what makes for Joshua-like individuals in a community like ours? as we consider all that the Bible says about Joshua. And remember, there's a whole book named after Joshua. <laughs> we recognize that above all, and I think a strong case can be made for this, that above all, Joshua was a recipient of God's empowering grace upon his life. Think about it. It was Joshua who was doing battle with the Amalekites. Joshua could have been killed during that time, but he wasn't. God's preserving power was on Joshua. 
Dasha was going to fulfill. He was going to do his father's business, so to say. He had to be about his father's business. He had to fulfill his assignment. And friends here today, if you don't hear anything else I say, make sure that you are given due diligence to the father's assignment on your life, that you're about your father's business in your life, because that's where we're accountable before him. Not the business of your neighbor. His commission to you. What has he laid his hand on you to do? And within the body, there are many different moving parts. It's a remarkable thing when you think about it. But there's one head, and that's Yeshua. And each of us have our own tasking that we are to do. Rob showed Paul likens in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, right in the middle is chapter 13, the commission of love for us. He likens to it that, that, you know, if one's a toe, then the toe can't be the eye. <laughs> And what would it be like if everyone was an eye? We'd just be an eye clops up here, you know. We all have our task and call, but it's under one head, Yeshua the Messiah. But it was empowering grace that made Joshua a Joshua. It's one of the aspects. We're going to discuss some more. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, some of you have this passage memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. If you are a believer and you've experienced the Yeshua, the salvation of the Lord, at the core of it is grace, God's blessing to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It is the gift. Literally, the Greek is a free gift. You can't buy it. It is the free gift, the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And it continues in verse 10, and this applies to all of us in the body of Messiah. Notice the word we, for we are his workmanship. You see that work in your life, molding you? See that work in your life, trying to bring you to the place where finally you may be well down the pike of life. Finally you're saying, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do what he wants. I want to be about my father's business because ultimately Breath is going to leave me like breath left Moshe. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we, verse 10 of Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works. I love the description that Peter gives to Cornelius, which says Yeshua went about doing good. If you're wondering what you should do with your life, do good. Do good. Asetov, do good. For we are his workmanship created in Messiah issue for good works, which God prepared beforehand. We have an assignment. God prepared beforehand that we should notice the verb walk in them. It's an ongoing process. We continue to walk in the commission the Lord has given to us. So coupled with God's powerful grace that was extended to Yahushua, to Joshua, there's something coupled with it, though, that's really important. And it's important for you and me today. Yes, grace, and we rejoice in the grace of God. It's irreplaceable as far as our eternal destiny. But something was coupled with that grace. And in Joshua, it was proven character. Joshua had proven character. You know, Joshua was willing to enter the fray. 
So many times we find him, he's in the middle of the fray. He's one of the 12 spies that goes out and spies out the land. He's fighting the Amalekites. He's right there with Moshe. He's, he's right in the middle of the fray. But he was under the direction of community leadership. Joshua's godly character that's exhibited, and you can do a great, great study on his character, plus the empowerment of God's grace and his spirit upon him caused Joshua, I think, to be an example for us even now in 21st century America. Joshua is an example for us. And stated succinctly, Joshua was, can I use this term, he was a difference maker in his community. He was a help to those around him. He was a valuable vessel for the Lord. And he was a valuable vessel to those in authority. And particularly, often Joshua is described as Moses' right-hand man. Of course, he had Aaron, who was his brother, though. But there's Yehoshua, Joshua, right there with Moses and almost everything Moses goes through. There's Yehoshua, Joshua. Joshua was a person that could be relied upon no matter what the allotted task was. Fight the Amalekites. Yes, I'll do it. <laughs> Stand with me at the base of Mount Sinai while everyone else is in debauchery and going after the eagle as a hob, the golden calf. I'm right here with you, Moses. Etc. when we look at his life. And you know, we don't apply the acronyms like A-W-O-L or M-I-A, we don't apply those to Joshua. Why? Because he's there front and center. He's not hiding out. He's not making excuses as to why he's not there. He's there front and center. I've never once heard all these years I've been a believer, I've never once heard one pastor, preacher, or messianic rabbi describe Joshua as AWOL and M-I-A, missing in action. Not once. Never even heard a sermon about that. Fact, Joshua's there. He's right there. The whole time, he's not afraid of the fray. He's right involved. But instead, we should think of Joshua as he really is, or as he really was. He was a he-nay-ni servant of God. Here I am. He-nay-ni. Can you say that with me? He-nay-ni. Here I am. He wasn't full of excuses about everything. He was there, right in the middle of it. He was about his father's business, and he knew it, and he did it. So there's no indication also in the Bible, when we think about Joshua, there's no indication whatsoever that Joshua was lazy. There's no indication whatsoever that Joshua was passive. There's no indication whatsoever from Scripture that he was selfish, that he was stingy, that he was argumentative, that he was rebellious, that he was arrogant, that he was obsessed with material possession, or that he was a casualty of fleshly lust. No indication whatsoever of those things when we talk about Joshua. Not only do the, the terms AWOL and MIA missing in action, they don't apply to him, but none of these other things apply to him either. He wasn't a selfish, argumentative, self-centered person. He was, can I use the term? He was an Evid Adonai. Can you say that with me? Evid Adonai. Let's try that one more time. Evid Adonai. He was a servant of the Lord. 
Are you a servant of the Lord today? Are you about your father's business? Are you in the realm of excuses and making up all kinds of reasons? Are, are, are you more described as AWOL and MIA than a Hineni servant of God? Only each of us as individuals can answer that question. But let me ask you this question. Are you a Joshua in the making today? Are you a Joshua in the making? Are you a difference maker for Messiah Yeshua in our community, in this world around you? You are a difference maker. Are you a Joshua in the making? Are you that workmanship that we described in Ephesians 2 verse 10 where God's working with you as a potter does with clay to form you so you will be about the Father's business? And life is brief and short. Don't think tomorrow's yours because it's not. Now's the day to serve the Lord. Now's the time to put away the excuses. Now's the time to ante up and be there. To be a hineni evet Adonai. Here I am, Lord, servant of the Lord. So in conclusion, I'd like to suggest 12 traits. I'm going to go through these briefly. 12 traits that are found in Joshua-like followers of Messiah Yeshua. 12 traits found in Joshua-like followers of Yeshua. In other words, what does it take to be a Joshua? To be about the father's business in the way that Joshua was. For example, here's trait number one. Twelve traits found in Joshua-like followers of Messiah Yeshua. What does it take to be a Joshua? Number one, trait number one. A Joshua must be loyal and faithful to God. Loyal and faithful to God. Trait number two. A Joshua is consistently loyal to the God-ordained leadership in the community. Talk a little more about that a bit later. Trait number three. A Joshua must be willing to do what I like to call the trench work. <laughs> must be willing to do the trench work, the, the work that goes on behind the scenes in a community that isn't so glamorous. A Joshua doesn't need to be front and center. A Joshua just does the Father's commission, even if it's not glamorous. Wielding the sword against the Amalekites, pretty brutal stuff, but there's Joshua. Number four, trait number four, this is a very important one. A Joshua must be dependable. Dependable. You can count on a Joshua because a Joshua is reliable and trustworthy. You can count on them. A Joshua lives by principle, not by the feelings of the moment or their own self-will. That's not how a Joshua lives. A Joshua is present, not absent and given to excuses. Trait number five. A Joshua is not tossed to and fro by every wind of change, every wind of doctrine, or running here and there after meetings all over the place, or easily manipulated by someone within the community who's seeking their own will to be done. In fact, in the Torah, when you look carefully at Joshua's life, in the Torah, it makes clear that Joshua, he never took part in the golden calf incident. Neither did he align himself with 
Korach. He didn't align himself with Balaam. And in fact, he didn't align himself with any person like that. He aligned himself with the Lord and with the servants of the Lord. That's what he did. And trait number six, very true with Joshua, by the way, that we read in Torah. A Joshua is teachable, and a Joshua does not despise being mentored by those in authority. In fact, when you think about it, Joshua was mentored by Moshe, if we use our modern terminology, for decades. At least four decades. He was mentored by Moses. He was right there with him, participating. So, uh, trait number six, that Joshua is teachable and does not despise being mentored by those in authority. Trait number seven, a Joshua is patient (laughs) and realizes OJT, on-the-job training, is necessary and even desirable for accomplishing God's ultimate will. On-the-job training. And you see Joshua stepping up. He's not fully, fully done yet with the, the workmanship where he's going to end up being the whole leader of Israel and leading the children of Israel across the, the Jordan River and, and be involved with the falling of the walls of Jericho and entering in and taking possession of the land of promise. But when we first encounter Joshua, he's not there yet. He goes through a lot of on-the-job training, OJT, and he has to be patient. And trait number eight, a Joshua is careful, not spurious in decision-making. We find no spurious decision-making connect, decisions connected with Joshua. Eventually, at the end of the book of Joshua, what does he say? Probably the most famous statement by Joshua. You know it by heart. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's at the end of his life he's saying that. That whole time he's faithful. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord there at the zenith of his life. That's his pronouncement. That's his proclamation. So Joshua's careful, not spurious, number eight, in decision-making. Catch this. Knowing the decisions of today may greatly impact the outcomes of tomorrow. Did you catch that? Decisions you make today may greatly impact your tomorrow. Be careful. We don't find Joshua making any random decision like that. Trait number nine. A Joshua recognizes there is a spiritual battle. And you know what Joshua does? He doesn't shrink back. He doesn't shrink back. Instead, a Joshua presses on, knowing that in the Lord, victory is assured. And he keeps pressing on. And that's what we're to do. As we're about our Father's business, and we're fulfilling this assignment that he's given to us, and age is not the variant here. The assignment is the variant. When we press on, we just keep pressing on to that high calling and looking to the Lord to empower us, enable us, go before us, provide for us, whatever is necessary so that we are found doing the will of God because we will ultimately answer to the Lord himself. Number 10, trait number 10, a Joshua willingly sacrifices if necessary Sacrifice, if necessary, in order to bring about what God deems essential. 
Sometimes sacrifice is necessary to bring about the essential. That's what Yeshua did, didn't he? He sacrificed himself to bring about the essential part of this, which is salvation to you and me. Blessed be his holy name. Number 11, a Joshua will not be controlled by a spirit of fear. Fear does not control a Joshua. Instead, a Joshua, as I mentioned, presses on in a high calling of Messiah, regardless of circumstances, aware of what's ironically said to Joshua in Joshua 1, verse 9, in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 9, it says this. Notice the phraseology here. God says to Joshua, Moshe has died. It says that in the very beginning of Joshua chapter 1. Moses is dead, so there's no misunderstanding. He is gone. And then God begins to deal with Joshua in a very personal way. And in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. And notice this next thing. Will you read it with me? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's read that again, please. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You get this sense from Joshua's life that he got that. He understood when it was the Malachites. He understood in the various things he did that God was with him, and that's the difference maker in his life. And God with you is the difference maker. That's his prophetic name, Immanuel. With us is God. And number 12, finally, conclusion. A Joshua is ready and willing to be a frontline servant. Underline the word servant. Frontline servant in Messiah's kingdom. Rather than a backseat onlooker, a vocal critic, or an unhelpful naysayer. You don't find those things associated with Joshua. You, found, you find him, as you read the testimony about his life, he's a frontline servant of the Messiah, of the Lord. So all 12 of these Joshua attributes or traits lead us to these three conclusions. Number one, a Joshua is a person who trusts in the Lord with all their heart. Is that you today? Do you trust in the Lord with all your heart? You don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, do you acknowledge him? Knowing the promise that's connected to that, he will direct your steps. A Joshua, number one, is a person who trusts in the Lord with all their heart. Number two, Joshua's are a valuable part of messianic community life. We need Joshua's. And number three, let me say it this way. Number three, we need many Joshua's. In order to fulfill all God's purposes he has for us and for our community. So my question to you is, are you a Joshua? Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the testimony of your word. And for what we can read in your word. That you were able to work with human beings like ourselves. And to cause them empower them, give grace to so that they might fulfill, be about your business. Lord, I pray for each person hearing these words today, that each of us will be about your business, that we will stop making excuses, that we would step up to the line and be counted as a Joshua, a Joshua before you. 
Lord, I pray for your empowerment for those at this point who feel weary and weak. Please empower, Lord. I pray, Lord, for clarity, a clarification of your will for each of us as we seek to do your will. I pray, Lord, that we will no longer be found in the AWOL or MIA sections, but we will be found in the Hineni Adonai, here I am, Lord, Hishdameshbi, use me section of your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.